Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 65 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 65, I will be providing a short, uh, fairly short, internationals update in terms of, uh, you know, we're a week closer than we were uh, last, if from last week's episode, and kind of looking forward over to the next, uh, not very far away, one, two, three, four. Let's see, one, two, three, four, what, five weeks from now is the, uh, is the meet. So it is not far away. So exciting things happening there. And we have some listener questions, which is awesome. Uh, we're going to spend some time talking about some of those, uh, listener questions and kind of digging down and seeing how far the rabbit hole goes. We love receiving listener questions and we're always interested in, uh, hearing them. And sometimes we even go out and solicit them like I'm going to do right now, which is please, if you have any sort of, uh, questions and assuming you are hearing my voice right now, you are a listener. Therefore, you are having listener questions. Would love to have you send those to us at iq at cbqz.org. Uh, well, actually, that's one way. It's particularly a good way email there, but you can also send us messages on Twitter. Our account is at uh, inside quizzing and you can also talk to talk to us on the inside quizzing slack channel that's part of the Bible quizzing dot uh, slack dot com experience. All right. So with that said, I'll just kind of jump into the internationals update. So last Saturday, so this would have been like, um, I don't know, two, three days ago, we had a participation commitment deadline. So this was essentially each district needed to go online to a survey that uh, Zachary Tinker put together uh, to indicate, it was basically just fill out a survey, short little survey, I think it was like one or two pages, and uh, just kind of indicate a participation level or, or like, yes, we are going to participate, we're going to send this many teams and so forth. And so far, actually not so far, that deadline has passed, that was Saturday, we have at this point confirmed 12 districts are participating in internationals and we are going to have 18 teams uh, participating and 18 is a really wonderful number in terms of uh, how, uh, in terms of flexibility for how we want to organize the meet. Um, 18 is a really, really great number. We have a lot of flexibility as a result of that. So the current thinking is as follows. We're going to run six concurrent quiz rooms. We're going to run seven prelim quizzes per team, which ends up working out to uh, seven time slots for prelim quizzing across those seven rooms. And then uh, the plan is we're going to split that up uh, four prelims on Friday, three prelims on Saturday, and then we'll move into a top nine bracket and consolations uh, structure and then work ourselves towards the end of the meet that uh, that way. Um, all of this is somewhat subject to change. It's not really written in stone. We're proceeding under the idea that we have 18 teams. If it turns out that we end up with 19 or 17, uh, this level of flexibility that we have in this particular exact schedule is, is going to have to change a little bit to accommodate that. But that's sort of the general plan at this, at this point, six concurrent quiz rooms for prelims. And then we'll have to drop down, uh, to, uh, uh, far fewer quiz rooms for the top nine brackets and consolations. But it should give us a lot of quizzing. Uh, and not, we won't be under a tremendous amount of schedule pressure that way, which is really great. All right. So let's see. The leadership committee for internationals is meeting on, I think, Wednesday. 
So that's in just a couple of days uh, from now. So we're recording this on Monday the 8th, and I believe the Internationals Committee is going to be uh, chatting on Wednesday the 10th to figure out some additional logistics and strategies and so forth. And I suspect that very shortly after that, we will be putting together the official registration process for districts to tell us who are going to be the uh, nominations for the officials, who are on their quiz teams, who are their coaches, and so, fo uh, so forth. So that's upcoming and expect to have some news and updates available here as soon as we have them. All right, so let's move on to our listener questions. So Luke asked a couple of really awesome questions, and I'm going to start with the first one, which is uh, how to approach a question set that you are unfamiliar with. So an example of this would be, or how, how would you uh, approach a question set that you are unfamiliar with? And the scenario here would be, a hypothetical situation like you have been practicing and performing at district meets based on a an official district uh, question set, and now you are preparing to move into internationals, and we're going to be using an internationals uh, question set. So how do you prepare moving from one set to another? So Scott, how would you do it if you were the quizzer and, and preparing, and let's say you didn't have a lot of insight into what this question set was going to be that you were moving into, how would you prepare? Well, my first point of advice is to gather as much information as you can. So in your district, you probably quickly get accustomed to any style specifics of how questions are written. Maybe your district has um, a keyverse list that limits the verses that finish and quote questions must be asked from. I know some districts have club lists that limit uh, all the verses that that questions in, say, a Division B or a Division C can be asked from. And it's just helpful to know all of the, those sorts of stylistic things. I know that another very random style bit is one district would, if they had two phrases that were identical in a, in a chapter, they would write that as a chapter reference, which technically I think is against the rules, but within their district, they could decide that they were fine with it, you know? So it, it's, you want to be accustomed to what other, whatever standards or styles or conventions are used within your district. Then when you're moving outside the district, you want to gather as much information as you can there. Some of it's going to be very easy and obvious, like no published keyverse list. So, um, you have to get a sense for how, if I want to jump on finishing quote questions, am I going to make my own list and what are the, what is the criteria that I'm going to use? I really enjoyed years of internationals where it appeared that the question writers used the criteria written in the rule book about how spiritually significant is this verse relative to the others and does it stand on its own? Does it work better as a finish of this or a finish these two? And the quizzers that put in that kind of work ended up with a study list that more closely matched that of the question writers than kids that didn't do that work. And they, those quizzers were rewarded at internationals for it. Now we've kind of shifted towards a, you should expect, um, you either should expect or can expect every verse to be asked as a finish or a quote question, or at least to exist in the internationals question set as such. And I think quizzers have adapted their study to match that. So that's helpful. Like, any anecdotal information like that about trends internationals, because like this is a trend internationals that is not reflected by the rule book. You just kind of have to know that this is how things have been going. Um, maybe someone within your district has tracked 
quote and finish questions at internationals in past years, and you can compare the questions asked to the verses on the CQLT published kind of quote unquote key verse list and see like, oh, there's a tremendous amount of overlap or, oh, there's very little overlap. And all that's going to be information for you when you're putting together your study list. Now, beyond that, you you really want to be writing your own questions, especially if you are specializing on a specific type to write questions of that type, because writing your questions is a form of study in itself. So you get more accustomed with the material, you learn more about the type. And even though you will be writing them kind of based on what you know and what your styles might be, you're trying to be exhaustive and write questions. Even if you're like, eh, I don't think this one is very good. It might be awkward or a little bit forced, but I think it's valid, so I'm going to include it in my set. Because if you're preparing for internationals and specializing for a type that's not interrogatives or maybe chapter references, you can kind of write a really, really big list because it doesn't take a ton of time to study an extra like 10% of questions, which is might be the difference between a smaller list and a very exhaustive list. So I think um, know any trends in your district or standards or conventions, know any information that's happening at the internationals level from past years. Um, and this is not like knowing, oh, these are who the question writers are and who the editors are and what their styles are, because I'm pretty sure there's more than five writers that contribute and more than five editors. And pretty quickly, even if any one of those 10 or more has a style, that style kind of goes away because there's a bunch of other people writing questions and editing them, which I think is awesome. But there have been years of internationals where you just knew there were going to be almost no interrogatives um, unique in slower than two syllables or three syllables, or there was going to be one W interrogative a quiz. Or you're going to, you know, Matthew year on situation questions, you weren't going to hear almost any that started with teacher, comma, or sir, comma. There weren't going to be interrogatives that started with blessed are the. And if you just, if you like knew those things, that would inform your study and how you make lists and how you prepare yourself. All right. Very cool. So that's from a, that's a great sort of, um, hypothetical. Let's move it into practicality. So I think Luke is correct me if I'm wrong. He's from CMD, right? Yes. Okay. So Luke is moving from CMD to internationals, um, a, th this specific year you know, in, um, in, in five, uh, a little less than five weeks. What should Luke do from a practical standpoint, as best as you know of, uh, re related to the CMD question set and then moving to the internationals question set, uh, what sort of, you know, specific things might be useful for him uh, in terms of prep? If you have the time to write your own question set, I think that's incredibly valuable. I remember preparing a quizzer for interrogatives, and it was actually Hebrews and Peter year, and we went so, so in-depth on it. Like, we, knew, we looked for places where, oh, there are 138 question interrogatives in our set that start with what. This is the set that we wrote together. Um, but nine of them occur in the same context. So if I get stuck on a jump on what, I can quote this context and have a nine out of 138 chance of getting it right, which is actually greater than 5%, I think. Um, and just like little things like that um, all throughout the material, like, oh, Abraham. Abraham occurs most often within this context. And you, if you have a list to work from and can sort it alphabetically, you can then really slice and dice it and see 
what is the absolute optimal speed for me to jump at to get a certain accuracy level? And then you can make sure that you study to know questions at that accuracy level if you get, say, two syllables and a mouth shape. Um, so I think that's, if you have the time to write a question set, you can do so much fun stuff by sorting it alphabetically, um, looking at chapters, uh, specific verses. Like if you're a reference quizzer, you're like, oh my goodness, this one verse in First Peter has nine possible CBRs that are all pretty good. And I want to know if I jump on this verse reference, how am I going to attack it? How am I going to quote it to isolate each of those quickly? Versus, um, oh, in this one chapter, there's only three verses in the 20s, and there's only one CVRMA in the 20s. So I know if I hear a CVRMA on this chapter, I can jump really, really fast when I might not have previously known that. I think there's just so much you can do if you make that list. Beyond that, it really, like, especially if you're studying for CVRs, CRs, or interrogatives, it really just helps to know the material. Like, just extra studying to make sure you're recalling versus super quick. If you hear a unique phrase, you can place it in the material very quickly. Those things are going to help a ton on those question types because maybe it's not super helpful to have an exhaustive list of chapter references because there's so many. But if you have really, really strong knowledge of the material, you're going to be able to place stuff that you hear in conjunction with a chapter number very quickly and similar with interrogatives. When it comes to finished questions, quote questions, um, reference multiple answers, situation questions. Um, am I forgetting a type? Did I say multiple answers? You you really need a list of those types to compete at the internationals level because having a list narrows, having a list and studying from it narrows your possibilities down so much. It enables you to jump at like one syllable versus two, like a crazy difference. Whereas on interrogative questions, someone without a list might want to jump at three or two and a half. And someone with a list might want to jump at one and three quarters and two. Like the, the differences are a lot smaller um, between having a list to study from and not on interrogatives and CRs. Um, but it's not that on the other types. Yeah. So a couple of things specific to internationals that you should be aware of when you're preparing. Um, well, actually, I don't know that it really, I don't know that it really helps in preparing because I think Scott's, uh, advice is actually way more useful, but it's sort of things that, maybe prevent a certain type of hedging uh, in, in your prep. So uh, things that you should know about for internationals, we are going to be using CBQZ and we're going to be using the PNW uh, official question set, which is the same question set that we used in the um, uh, sort of the replacement quiz for, or quiz meet for the Great West meet uh, between CMD uh, Westcan and Metro and PNW uh, a few weeks ago. Um, so if you participated in that uh, meet the the question set is is exactly the same, right? Um, so a couple of things about that question set. There were what like eight editors? No, six. There were quite a number of editors for this set. Uh, Scott, do you remember how many? Um, at least four, if not more. Yeah, at least four, like big time. But I think I think there was even like six or eight, like in terms of like additional folks kind of looking over certain questions uh, and editing and, and making comments and so forth. So it's, and, and of course, you know, we used it at, at our, at our meets. So anytime a quiz master encountered a question that, that was, you know, a quiz master felt was a little squirrely, they could mark it for edit. 
And then it would get kicked up to the, you know, the committee of people that was, uh, you know, in charge of writing and editing and re-editing uh, all this question set. So it's, you know, like, like Scott was saying, because of this sort of constant touching of the, of the content in the question set, all styles have been effectively removed. Like, like there isn't, there's just sort of one generic style because we've sort of balanced each other out uh, across all these questions. So there isn't really a pattern necessarily that you're going to be able to pick up on for, uh, you know, interrogatives in terms of, you know, that there no interrogative is going to be key in shorter than two words, or every interrogative is always key in shorter than two words or something like that, or any kind of these patterns. Uh, there, there, it's a pretty wide range of, of questions, uh, that, that are there. So in that regard, there isn't really any kind of hedging. I think that you can do on the questions themselves. However, there is something that you can do when you're practicing as a team. So if you are on an internationals team and preparing with your coach for internationals, I recommend very strongly that you have your coach get uh, request access to the uh, the internationals practice set. So the practice question set is available to anybody that wants it. It is um, a subset of the official set. It's like, I don't know. I think it's 25% or very slightly more than 25% of the overall set of questions. So it is certainly enough to run uh, legitimate quiz practices uh, with full question distribution uh, and, you know, type distributions and everything, but it is not enough to be able to like study the question set and somehow hedge off of specific information that's in the question set. So if you are, you know, if you're on a team practicing for internationals, I would strongly recommend that you get yourself a copy of this, I, certainly for your coaches for practices, but even for yourself, um, it might be useful just to get a kind of a feel for the non-stylisticness of the questions. But uh, beyond that, like what Scott was saying, the opportunity to open up CBQZ and write your own questions, I think is gonna be really useful. In CBQZ as quizzers, uh, if you have a question set either that you've written yourself or if you're using, say, a practice question set, there is a uh, an opportunity in the quiz generator to run it as a practice quiz. Uh, actually, it's not called that. What is it called? Here, I'll look it up real quick. It is called self-practice. So when you go to the quiz setup page, there's a little box in the quiz metadata sort of box on the left hand side that says quiz practice if you click that box and then generate the quiz what'll end up happening is it'll generate the quiz just like normal uh but and it'll display uh, display the quiz room just like normal but it will hide the answer and the reference and the reference tool and and whatever you happen to have in your search tool so essentially all it will do is show you the the actual question itself and it'll show you the question type as well i think um and so that's kind of a nice little thing you'll be able to read that try to answer the question yourself and then there's a little button that says you know show me everything else stop hiding everything else and so it's kind of a nice little sort of a self test tool where you can actually kind of quiz yourself based on material that's generated from uh, question sets that, that you create. All right. So with that, let's move on to the next question, which also comes from Luke. And again, let's kind of, we can talk about this from a 
sort of global perspective, uh, both at internationals and internationals. And then we can also talk about it from the perspective of the upcoming internationals uh, quiz meet. So the question reads as thus, how would a quizzer adjust uh, his or her jumping speed in the middle of a quiz to maximize the probability of getting a correct question? So let's maybe start there at the district level. Uh, Scott, what are your thoughts on that? So at the district level, I do think it's very smart to change the speed that you're jumping in a quiz because you want to jump at the slowest possible speed to win the jump um, while still having enough information to get it right. But at the district level, especially if we're talking about international quizzers, at the district level, you can often jump much slower than you need to to get it right. But there's no sense in not getting free information if no one else is jumping at that speed. So it is super helpful to know, like, there is one really good multiple answer quizzer in the quiz, and they've quizzed out. So if a multiple answer comes up, don't jump on a syllable. Uh, you know, jump slower. And so that sort of situational knowledge really, really helps. You might get in a prelim with some relatively weak teams, and there's no need to push the pace in a quiz like that. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if there are really a ton of reasons to push the pace artificially higher for a reason, but I think at the district level, you definitely want to modulate your jump speed because there is going to be a wide range in jumping speeds from quiz to quiz. Now at a, at a meet like internationals or internationals, the jumping speeds almost don't vary quiz to quiz, um, especially in prelims, but maybe over the entire meet, they just don't vary. And so I think if you've put together a list, you can know what the optimal jump speed is for questions. Like I would, when I would write a question set, I would then sort it alphabetically. And for each question that I've written, write down how many common syllables it has to another question, uh, another interrogative that I've written. And then I could see, oh, if I jumped at two, two syllables in a mouth shape, this is how many um, from my list are unique at that point. Um, and I could say like, oh, it's 74%. So if I'm a robot or a computer and I jump at this pace, I will get 74% of them right. Um, and I could just do that for any, any slice. And I could see like, oh, if I jump at one syllable, I get 4% of them right. But if I jump at one and three quarters syllables, I get 45% right. Or I'm kind of just making up numbers. But be when you have data like that, you can then pick the exact jump speed that you want to jump at. And so that when I coach, like, that's what we would do. Like, I would find through data analysis the speed that I thought we should jump at. And then most of practice was spent um, drilling precision to that speed. And then once you get in a quiz internationals, you can be assured if someone's jumping faster than this speed, um, it is, um, what's the word I'm looking at? It's not inefficient, but it is, it's not likely, it's too fast. They're going to get a, a lower percentage right jumping at that speed, then I think you need to get right to score well, win quizzes. Um, this makes me think, though, of I also broke down in one year the difference between a top-scoring team, and I'll use the teams because I don't think, I think, I think it's just interesting because, you know, the top-scoring team was Western PA averaging something like 16 points a prelim, some insane number. And when I dug into their data, I saw, like, oh, my goodness, they won 65% of the jumps or some, some like crazy number. They just won so many jumps and their accuracy was good. You know, it was definitely above average, but it was, you know, 55% or something 
57%, but it was a very impressive accuracy um, because of how many jumps they were winning. It's the faster you jump, the more jumps you will win, but also the worse accuracy you will have. So to win that many jumps at that high of an accuracy was very impressive. They did not get very many bonus questions. That makes sense because they were just winning so many of the jumps. Contrast that to some team that I think they were fourth after prelims, and it was Central Canada. And in like stark contrast, they won something like 40% of the jumps or 38%, like just a small number of jumps, especially relative to Western PA. Um, but their accuracy was almost 70%, and they got by far the most bonuses of anyone. And I just thought it was like really interesting that it's kind of two very different approaches that were both very successful. And of course, what, whichever approach you're using, whether it's intentional or not, like you have to be very very well studied, but there is more than one way to score well. I think that's cool. But um, I do think that there is a really optimal speed to jump at. Um, and so that would be one thing I would encourage you not to adjust your jumping speed in the middle of a quiz, because if you have settled on what you think is the optimal speed, um, if if people are beating you, you want to let them because they're going to err at a higher at, at a high rate. Do you have anything yeah. to add before I get to corner cases? Well, I just want to underscore the last thing that you said like twice, um, because I think it's super, super true. Um, I mean, obviously everything you said is true. I agree with everything that you said, but like, like I would very much caution against altering the, your, your jumping speed in a quiz, unless it is to slow down very slightly. Um, I would try to come into the quiz with a strategy, an idea for what speed you're going to, you're, you're going to need to hit, um, at internationals, in, sorry, at internationals, not internationals. Um, I would say, you know, try to get as fast as you can with the best kind of accuracy. And of course, what does that mean? Well, that's going to be based on who you are, what your team is, all that kind of stuff. But whatever it is, think about it ahead of time, strategize about it ahead of time, figure out and identify like this is our target, right? This is this is what we're going to try to hit in terms of speed of jumping and then really rely on that. And if anything, let your give yourself permission to maybe slow down ever so slightly if you're starting to if the if if the error rate is too high like if the if your accuracy rate is ends up being below what you had calculated you were targeting then maybe you want to throttle back ever so slightly on your speed but i would in all contexts especially at the district level but certainly also at the internationals level don't allow the other teams to push you into pre-jumping uh or or egg you into jumping too fast and airing there's there have been uh not the majority of cases of, of quizzing at the district level but there has been a a a very common occurrence at the district level where teams you, you'll get a, like a couple of, of fast jumpers on a couple of different teams and they'll just fight and fight and fight and get faster and faster and faster at a at a prelim level at a district level uh, meet and the error rate will just skyrocket um, and you'll see really good quizzers, sometimes even internationals level quizzers who are airing out of quizzes in a prelim at a district because they're sort of they're kind of there's a speed feedback loop, if that makes any sense, where they're they're essentially trying to beat each other for this jump instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to let the other team get the question or sorry, not get the question. I'm going to let the other team get the jump because 
they're probably going to err. Or even if it's not probable, even they're going to err 40% of the time, right? That's not good. Or or if they're going to err 60% of the time, right? Whatever it happens to be based on the context of the quiz. So like, yeah, I, I, I like Scott said, think about this ahead of time, strategize what it's going to be, pick your pace, pick your speed, pick your accuracy level, and go into a quiz with that strategy. And don't change your strategy based on one or two questions, right? Like if, if you are going to change your strategy, I would only slow it down and I would only do it after, I don't know, at minimum six questions, but probably closer to 10. And it does help to um, keep track of the, the style and type of questions that you're getting, because you might find that all the questions are unique faster than you are expecting. And that requires adapting. But that also requires some amount of data. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is where, you know, your coach really needs to be supporting you on this, right? There's there's certain things that a quizzer can do in that moment, right? But like when you're on the platform, you know, it's question eight and it's a brutally fast quiz and it's a new room and it's internationals or something, right? Uh, and you're, you're sleep deprived. There's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of pressure on you as a quizzer. You, you're focused really on the hyper tactical at this point, right? Uh, if you can kind of take a step back when you're having timeouts and see the larger strategic for the quiz, uh, that's great. But ideally, this is something that your coach is tracking and paying attention to. Uh, as well and can kind of point out like, oh, these questions are different than what we're used to because of these reasons. Or, But more likely, it's going to be a situation like this particular quiz master paces in this particular way. You should anticipate it uh, in such and such a pattern or whatever it happens to be. All right. I've got a bunch of random points. I, I really encourage people not to use jumping fast or jumping slow because those are very relative and subjective. Um, I could never, it, it didn't work mentally for me to tell myself to jump slower, like in a district prelim, I would have to tell myself, you're jumping on five and a half syllables. And then I would work to hit that pace. And it didn't matter to me if five and a half syllables was a fast speed or a slow speed, because then it was just a game I was playing with myself. How precisely can I jump at the speed that I've decided? Um, two stories that I have, one that worked out and one that didn't. Um, so like when I coached, I always felt like I had nothing to say in interview in interviews in um, timeouts. And so I rarely called them, but other, other teams would call them a lot. So I would go up and look at my team and say, do you know your jumping speeds for each question? And they would say, yes, we do. And that would be the end of my timeout talk every now and then maybe one of them had made an error and I would say, did you jump at the speed that we had planned on? They would say, yes. And I'd say, did you make a good guess? Yes. Can you forget about it now? Yes. And just like really, really like just reinforcing the exact same thing because we knew the speed we wanted to hit. But um, one time it worked out was after prelims, the internationals, we were up, we were ninth, up 12 points on the 10th place team. And well, you know who's in, I think it's quiz Z is the ninth place in the 10th place team. And I couldn't remember the exact specifics, but I, but I want to say that that team just started jumping crazy from question one and got the first five questions right. I think um, four team members got a question. Actually, I think five team members got a question. And so we're sitting there on question six, and they have 150, I think, and we have 20. So now, for all intents and purposes, we are behind. 
we are in 10th place now and out of top nine. And it can be a very panicky situation. So I, I remember that timeout. I was like, okay, so we can try to match the speed and hope that we get lucky or we can jump at this, continue to jump at the speed that we think is prudent and hope that if we continue to get beat at a speed that we think is not prudent, that they will start to err. And by the end of the quiz, they had 100 points and we had passed them and retained our ninth place spot. And so that was, but like in a single quiz, it, it will not always be that way. The other team, a team might jump faster than is prudent, but get stuff that is unique at that speed and get them right. And then my other story was, this was top nine quiz. It was either quiz A, B, or C. And the quiz was very close late. I think it was a toss-up. And another team jumped on what what were on an interrogative. Just a flat two-syllable W inter- double W interrogative jump. And so I'm sitting down in the audience and I'm like, yes. You know, they're going to air. We got, you know, then we were going to either have a toss-up or a bonus question. Um, well, and then 25 seconds gone the quizzer pulls it out and just picks something. This was Matthew. Just picks something and happened to be right. And we ended up taking third in that quiz and ended up ninth. Because when you take third in that first quiz in top nine, it's a hard hard road back. And that was a situation where um, kind of luck and randomness just didn't smile on us, even though all the quizzers had not won a jump at two, two syllables flat on a WW. And it's not always going to work out. But I think... If you have your principles and can hit those speeds and have studied to get them right, then you're going to do well more often than not. Any thoughts before I move on? No, I totally agree. Another fun thing that you can do, this this more works in the district, but sometimes teams will have an extreme specialist. So for years in PNW, the best teams had one full content quizzer and one really good keyverse quizzer. And I was usually a full content quizzer, or at least my last couple of years. So what I would do once we got into finals um, is I would try to take all of the finish and quote questions from the extreme specialist because I know that I was basically rendering them useless. If I could, well, if I could get them right, that was gravy, but at the very least make sure that they don't get them right because I knew that they were really good at them. Um, so if, if there are, if there is a very strong quizzer um, in a specific type, especially a type that there's a lot of, um, I think it, it pays to jump aggressively on those question types um, because you're kind of rendering that one facet quizzer useless. I think that there's, I think question one is a really interesting question. I think if that question is gotten correct by anyone in the quiz, it sets a really positive tone for the quiz and the quizzes seem to go better. Um, and I don't really know how I'm terming better. I don't mean highest scoring by all teams, but it just seems to be a cleaner, more productive quiz where the teams that do know the most end up scoring the best. Um, but I also found that question one carries a lot of weight. And so, especially if we were in top nine against teams that I didn't consider, well, I wouldn't call them undisciplined, but if I thought that they were less disciplined than we were, Sometimes I would tell a quizzer on my team, hey, just go win the jump on question one, even if it's at a syllable. Because I knew that even at a poor speed, and maybe we get an error, um, the other teams would take the hint too far and jump at a way faster pace than was necessary or prudent. And we would just clean up on toss-ups and bonuses. Um, This does not work against the vast majority of teams, but there are definitely times when placement's all that matters. Like this is 
a poor strategy in prelims where you need points, you know. Um, you, it is nice. As long as you win first, you get 10, but you need points in prelims. So you don't really want to push that pace on question one if you can help it. But in top nine, if I thought I was against teams that were less disciplined than we were, I would totally push that pace on question one and see if I could bait them into speeding the quiz up. Um, and that does happen. I mean, that that still happens to this day. Absolutely. The one unfortunate situation is, especially in prelims, if you are facing a team that knows that their material knowledge is not very good, um, they will also know that it doesn't it doesn't pay for them to jump at a speed compare, comparable to their material knowledge. They need to jump at the speed that everyone else is jumping at and just hope that stuff is unique. And so when you get in quizzes against these teams, you know, half the time or one third of the time they're going to score 150 and the other two thirds of the time they're going to score zero. And it just, it sucks if you're in the quiz where they score 150 <laughs> and it kind of sucks if you're in the quiz where they score zero because they might air seven times and eat up a bunch of questions, especially before you get to the A's and B's. And so those are just really tough scenarios because the downside of airing does not provide enough disincentive for those teams to jump slower because internationals, if you jump even 10% slower than average, um, then the average jumping speed, you're going to win no jumps. <laughs> and it's just a tough situation. I don't know if you have any thoughts about how to deal with those sorts of quizzes, Griffin. I think it still goes back to the notion of like, pick your strategy before you walk in and trust in your strategy uh, rather. And, and there will be bad things that happen, right? Like, like in prelims, hopefully you are, you have enough prelims where if you have a bad quiz, you can recover from it, right? That's, that's the goal. Um, so that's not always the case depending upon the meet and the setup and so forth, but let your, give yourself permission to trust in your strategy, right? Um, I think over the long term, it will work out better for you, even though in the short term, you're going to get uh, occasionally you will get hit in it in such a way that you're thinking, wow, maybe our strategy is wrong. Um, but, you know, it's sort of like, you know, investing in the stock market. Don't 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 get freaked out when there's a sudden reversal or something like that. Like trust in your strategy because nine times out of ten, you'll your strategy may not be right, but you'll just make it worse if you react to the market. Yes, definitely. Now there are always going to be times at the end of a quiz that require you to jump faster than is normally prudent. Um, you know, down thirty on question twenty. You really have no downside here. To You just have to win the jump at all costs by the quizzer that can get you that third-person bonus. So there are definitely those times where you just have to make sure you win the jump. That is more important than winning a jump at a prudent speed. Um, and then my last bit was, what would you do, Griffin, in the situation where you're a team up by 10 on question 20 or down by 10 on question 20? Oh, or tied? It it so depends. I mean, it depends on, you know, who's who, who, what's my team? What, what are the other teams? What's the quiz master? What's the room like? What's the energy in the room like, right? In a sense, it even matters what question one was, right? So like, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm up by 10 on question 20, and question one was an error that set a really weird and awkward and sort of disheveled quiz, I might recommend that the team sit, you know, um, it's really tough, right? 
But again, it kind of, it all just kind of depends on like, I don't know what, six or seven different things. It depends on if we're talking about an early district meet versus a latter district meet versus dis district champs versus internationals versus, you know, Great West. Like there's, so, <laughs> there's so many, it depends, right? Yeah. I think for the most part, I've just come to decide that those three scenarios up 10 tied or down 10 are basically the same because a correct question flips um, the outcome in all of the scenarios. And so I just kind of jump at the same speed that I, that I would in any of them for all of them. I think it, things definitely change if you are up 20 or up 30 first uh, or um, down 20, down 30, I think up 20, up 30, I would place a larger emphasis on not committing an error, um, which would mean slowing down a modicum. Um, similarly, if I'm down 20, down 30, my emphasis is winning the jump. So I would push the jump speed higher. But if the margin is just 10, I think you want to employ whatever strategy you've been employing all quiz that you think is optimal. Well, sure. But I mean, if the if a team is up 10, their goal is don't err and make sure the other team doesn't get it right. If you're down by 10, it's make sure you get it right. Like, like it, which is, it's very, very similar, but it's, but it's different, right? I don't think it is because even if you're down 10, um, if the pace goes faster than optimal at all, um, there's a good chance that the team who is leading commits an error and it falls back into a tie with a toss up upcoming. There's a chance, right? I mean, and, and granted the chance is increased, but it's still only a chance. Whereas if you don't get the question, uh, if you don't get the jumping, you don't get the question, you're definitely going to lose, regardless of, like, assuming that the other team doesn't error, right? But I think that's that's the, well, I mean, you're right that the scenarios where you lose when you're not winning the jump are the team far behind wins the jump, or the team ahead wins it and gets it right. But I just, I mean, especially at the end of quizzes, the jumping is very quick normally, and if a team is going to increase their speed by a little bit to win the jump, I think it might... It, it might raise their um, rate of error above fifty percent. Yeah, I think uh, I th I think there is a little bit of difference between an up ten versus down ten scenario on twenty, but I will say that the difference is smaller than the context of the situation. Right. Oh, so interesting. Like, like if if you know, going back to your question number one, right, is very important. I totally agree. Right. If question number one was correct, if question number one, your team got correct, um, that actually might have a bigger implication on the, uh, might have a bigger delta on your strategy on question t uh, 20 uh, than if you were up by 10 or down by 10. Interesting. I, I could, I could believe that. I just, I feel like I've stressed a lot about, well, we want to jump fast, but not give away the jump. And but just the notions of what is the speed that we would normally jump at versus the speed at which we would be quote giving away the jump. It's like the tiniest difference, you know. Well, and, and that's just, the thing I, to to get that level of precision of like I want to go slightly faster than the strategy that we've changed that that we've um, uh, practiced for, right? And we've decided to target, and we've been playing. I'm going to try to increase my speed from that target, but I'm going to increase it in a very, very, very tiny way 
so just on question number 20, that seems like really a lot harder than just maintaining your strategy. Yeah. And that, that might also be what I came to is not that there shouldn't be a difference, but that it was simpler to just say stick with what you're doing rather than complicate things in a stressful situation. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I can totally get behind that. Should we hit this next bullet that you added? Do you want to introduce yeah, it? Yeah. So let's t- talking about it. We've been talking about district speeds and international speeds, but let's talk about international speeds um, being that, you know, that's coming up in five weeks. What are some jumping speed strategies that might be useful that Im- that, that come into play at internationals purely because it is a virtual quiz, right? Does, how does that change, right? Like what, and what's the difference between jumping at a regular meet versus a, um, uh, you know, a virtual meet? And how does that, how does that impact you in terms of your strategy? So a couple of things, there will be more bleed that you get from the quiz master, which tends to mean that you're going to see slightly faster actual jumping speed though you'll theoretically end up with getting you know the same number of syllables that you were you were hoping to target right however that's going to be harder right so the if you imagine like a um a, a a distribution a standard distribution right um and you're targeting let's say I don't know, pick a number. Let's say you're targeting two syllables, right? And two syllables is your mean. You want to have at lay it like an in-person meet. You want to have the bell curve of that be really narrow around the, uh, uh, around the, the two syllables, right? Cause that's your target. And there's going to be somewhere you're going to be a little bit fast, a little bit slow, but that's kind of your target at a virtual meet. You certainly want to try to keep the same idea. I want to get two syllables. I want to try to keep that bell curve as tight as possible. But no matter what you do, your bell curve is going to be wider than what you were used to at an in-person meet. And so as a result, you may not actually, and you probably don't want to target the same syllable speed that you would normally target at uh at an in-person meet because the variability of the answering the variability of the uh, not so much the lag but the variability in the quiz master seeing your jump and stopping and getting that lag coming back to you that's all going to sort of add up into a wider i i suspect i have no data to prove this but i suspect it's going to end up in a wider distribution uh, and therefore, you want to skew ever so slightly into the slower category. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean four syllables instead of two? I don't think so. But I mean, I think it's definitely like more than, say, 2.5 versus two as your target. If two is your target, right? Maybe you're you're leaning more towards three or two and three quarters or something like that versus exactly two. Because you don't, because you're going to end up in situations where you end up getting the jump and you got five syllables and you end up getting the jump and you get like, I don't know, one and a half syllables. Like it's going to be harder to, to, to nail that in. So, um, so that's there. The other, yeah, go ahead, jump in. So I would actually think differently. So Hmm. using two as our assumed target, and I feel like if we're, I almost said if we were running a real podcast, I guess this is a real podcast, but you know, when people say we are not investment advisors, this is not investment advice, or we are not doctors, this is not medical advice. Like I'm, we're not saying that this is the target. Like I have not broken down Hebrews. We are not your coaches. 
Yeah, I do not. We know. are not your coaches. We are not certified coaches. This is not certified uh, quizzing advice. But assuming that two is your target's syllable speed on an interrogative, I think you are correct that at in-person meet, the distribution of jumping speed on interrogatives is going to be very tight with um, a high point, a very high point of the distribution above that two syllables. Um, and that's probably good because once you hit one and a half syllables or lower, accuracy probably really drops off precipitously. Now, I also agree that because of the internets and a little more bleed on the Quizmaster for a virtual meet, that the distribution of jumping speeds is going to be wider and flatter. Because of that, I would actually expect it um, to, I mean, I don't know how to say this. I would expect quizzers, like if the quizzers did nothing different, um, the distribution would be flatter and wider, but the the average might be now two and three quarters just because of differences between in-person and virtual. But I think because of that, quizzers were like, well, I only need two syllables of information, and they're going to start jumping faster to try to move that average back towards two, which is going to bring a lot more of that precipitous jumping speed area um, at one and a half syllables-ish into play because of this wider and flatter distribution of jumping speed, which I think could make interrogative questions relatively less desirable than normal oh no i actually you know i completely agree with everything you said i think i think inter i think interrogatives become less desirable specifically because of this and i my my advice non-certified to slow down ever so slightly um is because you can ex because of that expected bleed that you're going to get that you wouldn't necessarily get in person, right? So when I say, you know, target like 2.5 instead of 2, I'm not saying jump at 2.5 as if you were going to jump 2 at an in-person meet, but rather jump at who knows what it ends up being. But let's say jumping at 1.5 so that you get 2.5, right? Um, Sure. Knowing that ultimately sometimes you'll end up getting one and three quarters, probably not. You'll probably end up getting more like two. Um, but because of the variability, like, like, so all of that, 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 that span, right? The dis, the normal, the normal distribution curve flattens. It becomes wider and it also shifts essentially laterally because of, of the, of the, of the stop lag, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's roughly pretty much the same principle is you, if there's a specific amount of information that you want to get on a question on a jump, you should do whatever you need to, um, your jumping speed wise, quiz ma- like movement wise, to trigger your light and whatever the specifics are of the quiz master or the logistics to get to that amount of information. And the point in time that you start moving to jump might be wildly different based on the different scenarios. Um, yeah, but I think we did see extremely high accuracies, relatively speaking, for finishing quote questions at the um, virtual interdistrict meet. And given that those are more uh, more prevalent than they have been in past years, I would expect that to be a big um, area of emphasis where the jumping speed can be pushed faster to bring those accuracies more in an equilibrium. Or yeah. e- I guess, yeah, equilibrium with other question types. Yeah, I completely agree. The the other thing I'll point out is there's going to be a wider 
I, well, I don't, I don't know this for sure. I'm predicting. I'm predicting at internationals there's going to be a wider range of Quizmaster lag from room to room than there would be at an in-person meet. Uh, we're going to have six rooms instead of the customary four, which means we're going to have more Quizmasters. So there's going to be more variability in, in regard to that. But there's going to be some Quizmasters who likely have done a lot of virtual quizzing, probably at both the meet level and the practice level. We're going to have Quizmasters who are potentially new uh, to uh, virtual quizzing. Now we're going to be doing some workshops with the Quizmasters uh, to get them trained up and and get them really accustomed to it. So nobody is going to be coming into this, you know, completely green. But that being said, there's going to be people who have had more opportunity to kind of hone their speaking skills in a virtual meet than relative to others. So when you move from room to room, you can expect each room to be hopefully very consistent to itself, but the room's uh, are going to be uh, different from one another in a fairly uh, significant way. So anyway, uh, I think that's it on jump speed. Um, Scott, what do you got next? So I said how to deal with foreign or foreign in quotes quiz masters. Um, I think it is very, this will be pretty much impossible. Well, it will be impossible at um, internationals because everyone is quizzing in every time slot. But normally I would heavily recommend that you go observe Quizmasters that you have never seen Quizmaster before because Quizmasters are very different and um, timing is everything at um, the higher levels of quizzing and you need to have that t timing dialed into the specifics of the Quizmaster. I have been at Great West where the Quizmasters read a mile a second and so um, at virtually the same jump speed, quizzers would get two syllables and they would get eight. Um, and you just had to know like, oh, you can't jump with any precision. It, it, I'm just going to have to jump and hope that I get a bunch of material. Um, otherwise, I'm winning no jumps in this quiz. Contrast that to, I remember when I quizzed, there was a quiz master who was very consistent but paused for a long time after saying like question number nine, question. In the beginning, and it was a, a longer pause than I had ever encountered, and it threw me off and I never dialed in my jump speed in that room, even though the length of that pause was the exact same on every single question. Um, and that was on me that I didn't dial in that because it was the same playing field for every single quizzer and just getting as accustomed as you can, um, would be great, I guess. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, uh, as we were, uh, this is kind of a first for the show, as we were actually re in the middle of recording this episode, uh, we got a question that came in, uh, which is, what will we be using at internationals as the minimum maximum for question types in the quizzes? And we will be using what is in the uh, CMA rulebook, uh, the, the latest, most current CMA rulebook. So uh, interrogatives or standard questions or regular questions or straightforward questions or whatever you want to call them. Uh, that's nine through 16, uh, minimum, maximum. Multiple answers are going to be one to two. Uh, reference questions of all types, uh, chapter reference, chapter verse reference, uh, multiple answer, chapter reference, multiple answer, chapter verse references. These are going to be between three and seven. Uh, quote questions, so quote and quote two verses are going to be between three and four, and all finish type questions, finish this, finish the next, finish the verse, finish the 
next finish the two verses uh however people want to say that one and hopefully it's not as clunky as how i say it that is going to be between uh three and four are you doing assigned seat bonuses we are doing assigned no Sorry, we are not doing assigned seat bonuses. That is a uh, that is an excellent question. <laughs> I so normally we would do assigned seat bonuses, but uh, because internationals being virtual, there really isn't a seat position really. And we were thinking like, well, is there a way that we could do that by having coaches submit rosters ahead of time? Uh, yeah, we probably could figure out a way, but it would be really, really clunky. And we just didn't see the the point or the value to it. So we're going to do a team jumping bonus. So the way this works is, um, you know, let's say question number one, team A errors. Let's say you're on team C. Uh, question number two, team uh, B errors. So question number three is going to be whatever it happens to be. And it is a question for your entire team, team C. And the quiz master will run the question just like any other question. And in effect, theoretically, on your team, you are competing with your teammates for the jump. Now, of course, you want to have a strategy ahead of time for, you know, who's going to jump on the question. Maybe there's a type thing that you want to discuss between your team. But this is the other thing that's really important about team jumping for bonus questions. You are not allowed, per the rule book to discuss who's going to jump on the question prior to the question being read. Uh, sorry, uh, prior to the, the, the beginning of the question being read. So... Uh, you can call a timeout before the bonus question, right? So it is entirely possible and reasonable to say, like, after the second team errors, you can call a timeout. And if the quizmaster hasn't called the uh, question type for the bonus, it's completely fine to have a timeout. Uh, and then, of course, you can talk about strategy of who's going to, you know, jump or whatever. But once the question begins, you cannot communicate. Like, you can't even do nonverbal communication. So you can't do, like, everybody's ready, and then, like, you hear the, you know, oh, it's a quote question, and you say, like, okay, I'm going to point at you, <laughs> you know, quizzer, you take it versus me, or something like that. You don't do that. Um, that's a great way to get a foul. That's not a good situation to be in. Um, but other than that, it works like a regular question, but you're only competing against the folks on your team. So here's a question. This is now turning into new rules hour with Scott and Griffin. Um, mm. But I thought of a midpoint between team jumping bonuses and assigned seat bonuses. And that is no one, no one on a team can win um, a second jump on a, bonus, on a team jumping bonus um, until everyone on the team has one right. Ooh. It's just like Ooh. Monopoly. You can't build a second house on a property until every property has one house. I really like this idea. Because okay, then so you, me... you, can, you can scheme all you want to decide like, oh, if this first team jumping bonus of the meet for our team is this type, we want this quizzer to, to win the jump and try to get it. And then you kind of, you can, yeah, you can strategize all kinds of ways. I love this idea. And it works really well both at the internationals level or internationals level and all the way down to, you know, the first or second, uh, you know, district meet uh, level as well. Because, like, what's the point of, of uh, you know, assigned seat bonuses, the idea that, uh, you know, at the district level, uh, you're, you're wanting to encourage your third and fourth chairs to get uh, jumps, right? You're, you're 
you're you're trying to encourage everyone on the team to be prepared to be able to answer bonus questions, right? Um, at the internationals level or internationals level, it's really more like how do I squeeze out you know an extra point of 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 value here and here and here. I really love the idea of a team bonus, but it's like yeah, it now it can really only be seats three and four that that jump on this before you can rotate back around. That's really cool. Yep. And you could do a simpler version, which is, I think, less fun. But you could say, like, um, no one can get um, more than one um, correct bonus in a quiz, you know, and just kind of limit it the way that we do correct questions or incorrect questions. Um, but yeah, that's, 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 that's more artificial, you know. Yeah. I mean, and effectively then, like, if you've got, you know, five people on a team and there's six bonus questions for your team. Now, I mean, that would be a crazy quiz, but let's say there's six bonus questions for your team. Does the sixth question then just not, it's not answerable? I would say like, it's kind of like um, in overtime. Now the question type requirements are a type cannot be repeated in a set of three. I would kind of do the same thing. Like no one person can get more than one correct bonus um, in a set. I don't know how to say that. Like if you have four team members, um, in the first four bonuses that your team has a chance to get. And then it can like resets. Or if you have three members, the first three or five members, the first five, you know, interesting. But it, that's definitely more artificial, but this kind of plays into um, like the logistics of keeping track of something across quizzes um, that we don't do for an, on an individual basis. We don't really do it on a team basis. I mean, to some degree, um, the summing of team points across prelims, like as prelims goes on, past ones do have an impact on future ones, right? As teams are fighting to be in top nine, top 18, what have you. Um, but I think there could be a lot of interesting things to be done um, on the individual level across quizzes. Like my idea of if you've won at least 10 jumps and your accuracy drops below 10%, then you have air, like accuracy out of a meet, you know? Like right. that's a, a cross quiz something that you have to keep track of but i think that can be useful for things like bonuses too um that would reward teams that are have good material knowledge across the whole team um which is what i want to what you want to do i think because it is then increasing the penalty of an error for the other teams uh, which serves as a good descent disincentive to erring yeah yes indeed all right. Well, on that new rule proposal bombshell, let's wrap up the show. I want to remind everybody, of course, that we would love to hear from you. And if you have ideas regarding this new possible rule, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And uh, if you are on the Slack forum, the biblequizzing.slack.com forum, uh, please consider lurking in the pound inside dash quizzing channel and ask your questions away therein. And with that, I want to thank everybody for listening and thank you, Scott. Thanks, Griffin. 